0: Welcome back to Life Support Podcast. Thanks for listening. Before we get started, always a quick reminder to hit the subscribe button, and maybe you can follow us on any of the social media platforms out there or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Today, we're following up with Dr. G, focusing a little bit more on the youth side of eating disorders.
1: So I think it's so important to talk about, and I think, you know, for me, one part of the community that I I really think a lot about is, you know, youth. We think a lot about youth mental health here at CIHU. We, um, you know, as a mom, I, I think about like how my kids are experiencing the world. And especially as you see kids grow and change, you know, not only is your mind changing, but your body's changing so much. And when you think about treatment and support for eating disorders, how is it different for you? For younger kids or for, for kids in general versus adults? Because it just seems like such a different experience in your body and your world, um, but also such a sensitive time, right? So how how would you kind of describe that? I love thinking about prevention. And I love
2: thinking about prevention wherever we can find opportunities for it, because we really want to prevent this onslaught of this mental illness that has such grievous medical problems. One of the ways that we can empower our communities is by starting at home and to be clear, families do not cause eating disorders. They don't. Caretakers, parents love their children and all of us can improve as parents or as individuals who are helping to raise youth. We ourselves as the adults in this situation are deeply impacted by diet culture It is so common to talk about, oh, I lost five pounds. Oh, I gained five pounds. Oh, I can't eat this. Oh, I shouldn't eat that. Oh, it's going to be Thanksgiving. I have to make sure to work off those pounds. It's become a constant stream of dialogue that our children listen to. And we know it's not meant for them. But the reality is, is that they are listening and they love us and respect us so much that if we care this much about it, they're going to as well. So one of the most powerful sets of behaviors that I'm gonna generally say parents, but I mean caregivers as well, can do is to shift the way we're interacting with this whole subject at home. For instance, we might stop talking about our bodies or anyone else's bodies positively or negatively, not you look so good or boy, cousin Cora really put on a few. Nope, don't say it. Parents think That they're giving their children the message, hey, I want you to be healthy, I want you to have a great relationship with your food and your body and be well the rest of your lives. But actually stigmatizing certain bodies and honoring certain body looks above others only harms, it only shames. Our children know, studies show from toddlerhood, that society wants people to be thin, not fat. It's one of the reasons why all of the Disney villains and buffoons are in round bodies and all of the worthy moral heroes are in slender or muscular bodies. We might stop talking about food as good or bad. Yes, we want to make sure that our kids eventually develop the capacity to eat a well-rounded meal most of the time. But commenting on food as junk or off-limits or bad makes their concrete little brains go, oh, bad means capital B-A-D. And because they too have cave person brains, if they live in a house where there's no processed food or very little sugar, when they go to a friend's house, they will binge on it. And anyone who's, you know, had kids will have seen this phenomenon once in a while where there's a kid in the house who's in the pantry just guzzling the cookies and the candy you've got. And you're like, geez, what is happening here? Invariably, that kid is coming from a family where those things are restricted. So if you can teach your kid instead that there's nothing dangerous about food, that we can trust our instincts and our appetites, That we can have a delicious meal that's got some greens in it and that also has some sweets and that you can have some goldfish for a snack or you can have some carrots and hummus for a snack. We teach them that they don't have to doubt the trustworthiness of their own appetites and their own needs and their body's signals. That it doesn't need to be so tightly externally regulated that our cave person brains get triggered into a false pattern. Um. We can additionally help our kids, and I think parents might anticipate the stuff I just said, but this might be a little more surprising. We can allow our kids to experience their full range of emotions. Certainly, it's very easy, and goodness knows, as a type A anxious physician, I did this wrong for many years until, actually, my patients started teaching me the opposite, which was, you know, to sort of give the old, like, you're okay. Oh, you know, your kid is crying and they're frustrated or they, they've got a they skinned knee or they have a stomachache. You're okay. You're all right. It's okay. And of course, it is okay. And there may be part of parents that just wants their kids to learn, hey, let's modulate the response and have it be right for the circumstance. But the reality is, is that by validating our kids' emotions and giving them names, we say it's all right to have a wide array of feelings, not all of which are going to be comfortable So I learned instead of, you know, when one of my kids would uh, come to me and say, "Mom, Mom, my stomach hurts, I would be a classic doctor. And I would be like, okay, are you hungry? Do you have to poop? What's going on here? And then I would invariably say, yeah, you're okay. Well, that was not helpful. So instead, what I learned from my patients to say is something like, that sounds really uncomfortable. I'm so sorry. Do you want to cuddle or do you want to talk about it? And I will tell you that works for practically everything your kid brings to you. Give compassion, give validation, give an opportunity to recognize this deserves comfort. It takes the emotional air out of the room in the best possible way. Because when our kids learn that we respond to their needs with compassion, comfort, and validation, they internalize that voice and they become able to listen to their own needs and respond accordingly after they've had it modeled by their most trusted adult. That means that as they get older and the hormones start to hit and the social situations get a lot more complicated, instead of having a voice in their head that says, I'm feeling all these things, but I've been taught all my life, it's okay. It's okay, I have to be okay. But I'm not okay. So I guess I'd better numb because there's a real dissonance in me between what I think I'm feeling and what I've been told I should interpret it as. And so numbing can take the place, can, can take the form of eating disorders, purging, starvation, drugs, alcohol, all of those things numb so that they don't have to feel the feelings. And if instead we can show up and say, you know, feelings are sometimes really comfortable and sometimes really suck. Either way, you're loved, you're safe. Here's a word I might use to describe how you're feeling. Does that seem to match how you're feeling? That's enormously protective.
1: That's fantastic. And I think a lot of that resonates in terms of you have that instinct sometimes or you feel like the the way that you were raised, it's just how to change that language in a way that I think is more about cultivating that flexibility and support within within the kids that you're around, whether you're the parent, the teacher, the caregiver, just somebody in that kid's life. So I, I think that that's really helpful for anybody that's um, working with, living with, growing with kids. One of the other things I think that we have been talking a lot about, don't mean to, you know, burn people out with this topic, but, you know, COVID, right? Like, I, I think about covid and youth and how much, especially young people's worlds have been turned upside down in the last couple of years. What has been your observation experience in working with young people through COVID in managing eating disorders? How has that landscape shifted, changed? How have they been impacted?
2: Yeah, I'm sure this resonates with everybody who's listening to this. It all got worse. And I think it all got worse for a variety of reasons. One of them was isolation from peers no matter what age kids are they need peers they want to be cubs playing whether they're big cubs who are 18 or they're little cubs who are six they need to be playing with other cubs and that was really closed off for a while two a lot of people started talking about the covid 20 or weight gain during covid and kids are listening so if parents are starting to bemoan the appearance of their own bodies, then kids are thinking, oh, geez, you know, I guess I'd better be careful as well. And it can be a point of rebellion. No, oh, if my parent hasn't done a good job with this, I definitely can. I'm, I'm better than them. I can show them. I get, I'm going to in a world that I can't control anything. I can control this. And that can be through food changes. It can be through excessive exercise. There's a lot of ways that can show up. And then I think that the lack of cubbiness in person made people turn to social media more. And whether that was just YouTube videos or or cartoons or it was actually, you know, active social media engagement, the disparity between the perfected worlds that people share. And that perfection can also take the form of, oh, this is an influencer who's always talking about her mental illness but also seemingly making thousands of dollars and getting lots of attention. So she is living in a more perfected world than I, because my loneliness and sadness is lonely. I've got no one paying attention to me. So she's in a better position than I am. I'm so much worse. I guess the one thing I could do here would be to try to make my body look more like people who have power. So these are all reasons why COVID was just so hard on our kids, not to mention grief and loss. So many people lost somebody that they cared about, and we didn't have a real place to put that grief and loss. It all happened so fast. So there's a lot of collective healing to do. And as parents and teachers and coaches want to create safe spaces, I think a lot of it is around You know, hey, let's have time to share our feelings, whether it's, you know, out in the open or in settings where that's not safe. You all are welcome to spend 20 minutes journaling. I don't have to read your journals. If you'd like to share them with me at some point, I'm certainly happy to look. But just to give space to have thoughts, especially where in modern child rearing, there's not a lot of room for introspection. The kids aren't walking a mile to go to the playground to visit their friends during which they think they're um, being driven and they're on their screens the entire time. So there's just, there's less time to process and um, trying to help our kids get that time is important. Speaking
0: of what parents and caregivers and teachers and coaches should be doing or not be doing or how, how to have that conversation, what should they have top of brain
2: if they're worried about a kid in their life? I have heard so many patients tell me The individual who really saved my life was my teacher, was my coach, who, when everything was chaotic at home, I knew I was loved, but there was a lot going on and there wasn't a lot of time. I had a teacher who pulled me aside in a quiet, empty classroom and said, hey, it looks like something's going on. What's going on with you? I'm worried about you. And then just stayed quiet and listened. That gives a kid that validation that they've been seen. Whether or not it has anything to do with body changes, if their temperament has changed, if they become more irritable, if your star player on the team is suddenly withdrawn and can't show up and isn't performing well, let's show up. It allows the kid to feel really seen and known. And so what's important is that teachers, caregivers, parents, and even a nice primary care doctor, a pediatrician, they don't have to fix this. They just have to know that there's a problem. Once we've noted that there's a problem, even when there's a lot of resource scarcity, there are a lot of solutions and helps out there. So the very best thing will be for, you know, if if it's a teacher or a coach, use the system you're in. Who is a trusted leader in your system? Is it the principal? Is it the school nurse? Is it the school counselor? Just to share and be like, you know what? I've been watching Jack for a couple of weeks and there's something going on. And I think somebody needs to look into this more. Will someone please take a look? That allows this to be shared among adults who care. And that way, you know, the the person has the opportunity to think, you know, maybe let me reach out to Jack's parents. Uh, if Jack wasn't super responsive on this or if Jack's very young, let me just reach out, see what's going on. and And make sure that we're all thinking about this together, not in a sort of your kid's been developing an eating disorder and no one's been paying attention. Just hey, we all care here and life is complicated. I wonder what you all have noticed because we've been noticing some stuff that worries us. If there is some consensus that there's worrisome stuff going on, I think finding, you know, googling in-state eating disorder therapist and dietitian. It is true. Many may not take insurance and that's very, very challenging because even those with insurance may find challenges there. But there are also ones who will take individuals on a rate-reduced basis or who can use insurance benefits. And someone is better than no one. Ideally, you look at the provider's websites. You never want to see Diet Talk on a provider's website. Anyone who talks about quote-unquote healthy weight loss strategies is a no for anyone with an eating disorder. But people who appear to be body positive, body inclusive, to talk about function and, um, you know, neurological and psychological healing instead of focusing on, on diet culture stuff, those are going to be your your best bets. And eventually we're going to want to bring in the pediatrician, the the general primary care doctor, and say, you don't have to be an expert in this. You don't you have to be curious and compassionate so if you can keep in mind that eating disorders come in all body shapes, shapes and sizes that they're really serious and that taking them seriously from early on will result in better outcomes that's something you can do even when you're overworked and then if you're if you're interested in learning more there are there are resources there are podcasts there are written resources both short and long form the key is a caring, compassionate, engaged professional who knows nothing from the very start about this is always going to be better than trying to wait to find someone who absolutely knows absolutely everything and have there be a long gap of identification and treatment strategies in the meantime.
0: I think you kind of answered my last question about how adults can help youth find and access treatment. And it sounds like trying to find that specialist, that, that dietitian or nutritionist, but also bringing in maybe the pediatrician or any other type of physician that might be a, a good way. But even if you can't find it, just having that conversation, right? Just having that almost counseling session and a counseling session could happen with anyone. It doesn't necessarily have to be a counselor, right? So this was a very, incredible topic. And I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot about just everything. And I remember having one of my nephews um, say, Oh, am I getting fat? Because you guys talk about diets a lot. And so am I getting fat? And it was just like, Oh, man, we messed up.
2: And like, you don't realize that they're always listening. So. And there's nothing a kid likes more than a parent who says, (laughs) I've been doing it wrong. I am so sorry. You know, I have learned
1: completely.
2: And I'll have been wrong. Let's do it differently. You know, there's no point for shame. You know, you can learn enough to be like, "Mm, I'm going to internalize that lesson. And then you move on because it's not what happened. It's what happens next in parenting.
1: I love that. And I think that that's a great way for us to close out today is just a reminder, whether it's parenting, caregiving, that maybe that's our our new description, you know, When you're taking care of supporting that kid in your life, we try to do as well as we can the first time, and then we go back and we figure out how to do it again and say we're sorry. So I um, so appreciate you taking the time to talk with us, Dr. G. Thank you for the work that you do. I know we'll link to a lot of the resources that you recommend in our show notes. And again, thank you for helping to support our listeners wherever they may be and working with patients, friends, family in their life. So thank you. You all are wonderful. Thank you
2: so much for the work you do. And for everyone out there listening, this is an intense topic. Almost no one is untouched by an eating disorder, disordered eating, or reminiscences of what it's like to be in a body in this world. So be gentle with yourselves. Take good care of yourselves. Come away from this podcast, maybe get a snack, put your feet up, you know, these are intense topics, and it's so important that we all take care kindly of ourselves as we seek to take care of others.
1: Thank you so much. Great. So that wraps up part two of our conversation with Dr. G. We want to thank her and her team for the time to talk with us. Also, reminder to link to the resources in the show notes. And we would also love to encourage you to like, follow us wherever you get your podcast, And we will talk to you all soon. In the meantime, just a reminder to give each other a little life support. Thanks and take care, everybody.